This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. So let's get our Bibles open. If you have your Bibles, open them, smartphones, tablets, whatever you need, open to the book of Joel. If you find Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you need to keep going. If you run into Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, you need to make a U-turn. Okay, it's buried in there, the book of Joel. Before we go any further, let me pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Give us ears to hear what you have for us today, for your glory. Amen. Show of hands here, to the best of your knowledge, how many of you have never heard a sermon on the book of Joel? Show of hands. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Get them up. Let me see them. Let me see them. Yeah, quite a few. Quite a few. We'll see what happens when we get to Obadiah, Nahum. We'll see what happens when we get there. It's an often overlooked book of the Bible for good reason. Its contents are somber, uh, offensive to modern ears. The topic the book of Joel takes up is God's discipline of his people. God's discipline of his people. How do I know if God is disciplining me? Some of you may have wrestled with that question. You've lived through some challenging chapter in life and wondered if this might be God working to chasten you. Others might be surprised by the question, does God discipline us? Let me give you a New Testament context for it before we dive into Joel. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? So there you have the short answer. Does God discipline us? Yes. He disciplines us. So we're going to look at Joel, chapters 1 and 2, under three headings this morning, we're going to look at the method of God's discipline, the proper response to God's discipline, and the ultimate aim of God's discipline. The method of it, the proper response to it, and the ultimate aim of it. First, the method of God's discipline. I want to read a good chunk of chapter one here so you can get the story, get the context for what's transpiring here. Joel chapter one, starting in verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. 
Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste to my vines, ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm tree, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Well, you didn't expect to hear that this morning, I'm sure. The occasion for Joel's exhortation to the people of Israel is a locust plague. Now, let's look, about this, let's look at this locust for a minute here. Middle Eastern desert locust it looks like a heavily armed grasshopper. You can see a picture of it here. These things are about three inches long. Let me know if you find a three-inch grasshopper in your yard this summer. Three inches long. I don't know if I've seen one that big. Uh, And the way they lay eggs is really creepy. They dig holes about four inches deep and a half inch wide, and they deposit about a hundred eggs in each hole in the shape of a cone that looks like something out of the movie The Matrix. They can pack 70,000 eggs into one square yard of soil. 70,000 in just one square yard of soil. When, they're, when they hatch, they can't fly, and so they creep along the ground. Hundreds of thousands of locusts creeping along the ground, and they devour everything in its path. Once they reach maturity, they can fly, and at that point, they can be nearly impossible to stop. Here's a before and after picture of what they do. They're like middle school boys at a pizza party. They leave nothing behind. And so this is the historical event that took place in Israel, and Joel explicitly connects the locust plague to God's chastisement of his people. This is not God's judgment of the nations. That's chapter 3. Chapters 1 and 2 are concerned with God's chastening of his people, the faith community. God's discipline, as we read in Hebrews 12, is something that he continues to carry out. Now, his method of discipline in your life may not be a locust swarm, But it will be something you can't stop. It will be something you can't control. A locust plague in the ancient world was one of the most feared ecological disasters. God will use whatever is at his disposal, whatever's at his disposal, to chasten his people. World history, local events, personal experiences, your health, all of it under the sway of God's providential rule. So make make no mistake about it. The text is teaching God disciplines his people. He disciplines me, he disciplines you. Now somebody's probably thinking, I'm not sure I want to be a part of that. (laughs) I heard a story this past week about a first grade teacher uh, and an interaction she had with one of her students on the first day of school. And uh, this, this student, his name's Ryan, he was accustomed to going home at noon because that's what they did in kindergarten. So it was noon and Ryan was getting his things ready to leave for home when um, the teacher was surprised to see this happening. So she went up to him and, and asked uh, Ryan what he was doing. And he said, I'm going home. And 
the teacher replied, saying, well, now, now that you're in first grade, you're going to go to lunch now, and after lunch, you're going to come back to the room, and you're going to do some more work before you go home. Ryan looked up at her in disbelief. She was hoping he was kidding. She was kidding. But once he came to realize that she was serious about this, this is a first grader, he put his hands on his hips, and he said, who on earth signed me up for this program? God's discipline of his people can cause us to put our hands on our hips and say, who on earth signed me up for this program? Why would God do this? I thought a loving God would be tender and gentle, not impoverish me through a plague of locusts. I don't know how often you think about this, but... um, I often think of how the culture that I live in um, exerts influence on my understanding of God's love around the clock. It's the air we breathe. Though this is a bit dated now, it's illustrative. I don't know how many of you saw the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. It's a very interesting worldview that's portrayed there. It's, it's monistic, it's naturalistic, it's pluralistic. It was dedicated to Carl Sagan. It has far more connections with New Age, Pollyannish optimism than anything else. And so what happens when, when cultural artifacts like that exert more influence on our understanding of God's love than the Bible does? It becomes exceedingly difficult for people to hold on to the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, even the wrath of God. And so something has to give. So what usually happens is that God's love is purged of anything that's uncomfortable. So what do we do with verses like Isaiah 45, 7? God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And at no point does God cease to be loving. How about Lamentations 3? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? And at no point does God cease to be loving. How do we square that? How do we square that? Don Carson provides an analogy that's helpful. He writes, I can say I love my children unconditionally. I have a daughter in California who works with disadvantaged kids. If instead she became a hooker on the streets of L.A., I think I'd love her anyway. She's my daughter. I love her unconditionally. I have a son who's a Marine. If instead he started selling heroin on the streets of New York, I think I'd love him anyway. He's my son. I love him unconditionally. Yet in another context, when they were just kids learning to drive, if I said to one of them, make sure you're home by midnight, and they weren't, they faced the wrath of dad. In that sense, my love was quite conditional on their obeying me and getting the car home on time. In other words, despite the fact that we are dealing with the same kids and the same dad, the different contexts change the use of the love language. It was not that my love for them in one sense became less unconditional, for there's a framework in which that love remains constant no matter what. But there can be another framework where my children's experience of my love does change.
numerous places in the book of Psalms, the Lord is referred to as our shield. And I have wondered when reading those passages, God, if you're my shield, why are all these things, bad things happening? Why, is your shield, does it have holes in it? Why are all these things getting to me? If you're a shield around me, why, why are these bad things happening? Unless, of course, the hardship is part of his shielding. And he's protecting me from something far worse than that hardship. Because let's face it, one ounce of sin can kill you. But three tons of God's discipline can't hurt you. It'll only make you better and stronger. Second, the proper response to God's discipline. We we see it in chapter 2. Starting in verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Look at the actions that God's calling for, fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your hearts. And the call to action begins with, return to me with all your heart. This is the language of repentance. Repentance is the proper response to God's discipline. Throughout the Bible, repentance carries with it a twofold definition. On the one hand, it's sorrow for sin, not sorrow for getting caught. Sorrow for sin and turning the other way turning away from it and to the Lord. So God is calling the faith community to repentance. These are God's words to the prophet Joel. This is what I want you to do with this locust plague, with this chastening, with this discipline. I want you to repent. I want you to express a visceral response to the sin that you see in your life and turn from it and turn to me. Now it's interesting, he's calling believers to repentance. He's not calling lost people to repentance. See, in the Christian community, sometimes we think repentance is what I did when I became a Christian, and then I just move on to other things. No, repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Why does God call us to repent? There are numerous reasons. Let me give you a couple. In Psalm 32, David confesses his sin to the Lord. He repents. Why? We're given an answer. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Ray Ortland writing on this says, people living with unconfessed sin groan. (laughs) People living with unconfessed sin groan. They groan about this. They groan about that. But really they're admitting they have sins still unconfessed. Their strength is dried up. They're sluggish, unmotivated, always looking for ways to minimize their obedience because the joy is gone. It's interesting that when we connect the dots, we realize that a lack of repentance turns us into unpleasant people. Lack of repentance turns us into people who complain and grumble and groan and are joyless. 
But there's good news in the same psalm. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Repentance is a mechanism for restoring our joy. Have you considered that part of the reason you're joyless is unconfessed sin? There's another reason God wants us to repent. Repentance helps reposition us to our original created order. When God created humanity, he created us to walk with him in holiness and obedience and trust. He created us to be his image in the world and repentance restores that. It brings us back to our original created order. Is repentance a regular part of your life? Is it a regular part of your life? Let me share a story with you that might help cultivate repentance in your life. There's a guy, Bible scholar and pastor by the name of N.T. Wright, who retells the following story about uh, an archbishop in the Anglican church. The archbishop was, was hearing a confession of sin from three hardened teenagers in the church. All three boys were trying to make a joke out of it. And so they met with the archbishop. They confessed to this long list of ridiculous and grievous sins that they hadn't committed because of all joke. And the archbishop, seeing through their, their bad practical joke, um, called them on it. And the first two ended up running out the building away. But the third one hung around for a bit. And he listened carefully to the third prankster. Before he got away, he said to him, okay, young man, you've confessed these sins. Now, here's what I want you to do to show your repentance. I want you to go to the front of the church. I want you to look at the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. I want you to look at that picture and I want you to look him in the face and say, you did all that for me and I don't care that much. I want you to do that three times. So the boy went to the front, looked at the picture of Jesus on the cross. He said, you did all that for me and I don't care that much. And he said it a second time. But he couldn't say it the third time because he broke down in tears. And the archbishop who was telling the story said, the reason I know that story is I was that young man. As bitter as it is to think of it this way, a lack of repentance in our lives betrays an attitude that says to Jesus, you did all that for me and I don't care that much. Maybe we need to look this attitude square in the face if we're going to come to a place of brokenness. Brokenness is not where God leaves us. He takes us beyond that. The ultimate aim we see demonstrated in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And all through this section, God takes pity on his people. He restores them. He provides them with new blessings, satisfies them. There's new grain, new wine, new olive oil. The pastures become green. The trees bear fruit. So in response to the repentance of his people, he flourishes them. This is what the text is teaching. God gives physical things lavishly in response to his people's brokenheartedness over sin and true repentance. 
I've known men living in a cycle of sin and rebellion, wreaking havoc on their economic lives, whom the Lord has brought to their knees in repentance, and I have seen them restored vocationally, economically, to a place of flourishing. I've seen marriages devastated by sin with children caught in the crosshairs, restored because of true brokenness over sin and repentance for it. God flourishes his people when they grieve over their sins and they turn from it. One of the greatest revivals ever in church history happened in Korea in the early 20th century, early 1900s. And its beginning is always traced back to one event when the Korean church was very small, just a few hundred believers in the whole country. There was a prayer service going on and at, one of the, at that prayer service, one of the Korean church leaders, Mr. Kang, stood up trembling and said in barely more than a whisper, I have something to confess. I have for weeks harbored an intense hatred in my heart for Mr. Lee, our friend and missionary. I confess before God and before you, and I repent. The room fell silent, and all the eyes shifted over to Mr. Lee. Well, he was stunned, obviously, but he quickly answered. He said, Mr. Kang, I forgive you. What followed was a poignant sense of mental anguish over their sins. Church members in that meeting began to confess hidden sins, to weep over them, to pray for forgiveness. The meeting, which was scheduled to go just a couple of hours into the night, stretched until five the next morning. This and other similar events led to a massive outpouring of God's spirit. In one year, 50,000 Koreans had come to Christ. This in a country where before there were only a few hundred. The local college campus in Pyongyang, where this all started, saw 90% of its students come to faith in Christ. 90%. South Korea today, did you know South Korea today is one of the most thriving missionary sending hubs in the world? And it went back, Korean believers say, to when they started to take sin seriously and they hungered for God. God lavishes blessings into the lives of his people in response to their brokenness over sin. But God's blessings are not the ultimate aim. This section of text builds. He's lavished these things, physical things, into the lives of the people, but it comes to a climax in verse 27 when God says, Then, after all this has happened, then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. So all the restoration, all the flourishing, all the prosperity, they're good things, but they're never meant to be ultimate things. So in a crystal clear way, God is telling us what ought to be ultimate. He's making it known that he alone is God and that he is to be loved and worshiped and served above all things. God wants exclusive rights to your best thoughts, your best emotions, your best time, your best devotion. But that's where it gets sticky in a modern world. Oprah Winfrey walked away from Orthodox Christianity when she was about 27 years old because of the biblical teaching that God is jealous. That is, he demands that he and no one else gets our highest allegiance and affection. And to her, it didn't sound loving. Brad Pitt turned away from his boyhood faith. He says, because God says, quote, you have to say that I'm the best. It seemed to be about ego. 
end quote. C.S. Lewis, before he became a Christian, complained that God's demand to be praised sounded like, quote, a vain woman who wants compliments, end quote. So we may read a text like this with all this flourishing, all this prosperity, and we can quickly turn God into a pinata God. You know, just whack him enough times with your face stick and then all the goodies come out. But God is shooting higher than that. He doesn't want us finding contentment in his blessings. He wants us finding contentment in a relationship with him. The ultimate aim of God's discipline is to claim exclusive rights to your most committed allegiance. Does that make him an egomaniacal tyrant? What is God after in this? What are we after when we ask God for forgiveness? What are we after when we repent? What are we after? Consider an illustration when pastor shared this way. Suppose I get up in the morning and I'm walking to the bathroom. It's dark. I trip over some laundry that my wife left where it shouldn't have been. But rather than moving it, I react in a way that is totally disproportionate to the situation and in frustration say some harsh things to her. As I go downstairs, I know our relationship's in trouble. You could cut the tension with a knife. Yeah, I could have been injured. Sure, I could have broke my neck. But my words were completely out of line. As I enter the kitchen, there's ice in the air. My wife's back is turned towards me. You can kind of see in a bubble, inside the bubble, there are words that say, buzz off. <laughs> what needs to happen here? What needs to happen here? Well, the answer's pretty plain, right? I need to apologize to her for saying those things. I need to ask for her forgiveness. That would be the right thing to do. But here's the analogy. Why do I want her forgiveness? So that she'll make my favorite breakfast? So that the feelings of guilt will go away and I'll be able to concentrate at work? So there'll be good sex tonight? So the kids won't see us at odds? It may be that every one of those desires come true, but guess what? Every one of them is a defective motive for wanting forgiveness. Every one of them. What's missing? What's missing is this. I want to be forgiven so I have the sweet fellowship of my, my wife back. My spouse, my wife, is the reason I want to be forgiven. I want the relationship restored. See, forgiveness is simply a way of getting the obstacles out of the way so we can look at each other with joy again. It might be a relationship with the Lord's at odds. Because he loves you, he won't let that continue. He will chasten you for the purpose of seeing you repent. He will forgive you for the purpose of restoring the relationship because he fights to have joyful communion with you. Then you will know that I am in Israel. That I am the Lord, your God, and there is no other. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your word to us today. It's a tough pill to swallow. But even your discipline of us is loving. You're not a merciless drill sergeant. You're a loving father who is transforming your children from one degree of glory to another. You make exclusive claims to our best allegiance, not because you're an egomaniacal tyrant, but because apart from you and separation from you, there is no life. There's no flourishing. There's no hope. Help us receive your chastening as your loving act of sanctifying us, reshaping us into the kind of people you envisioned from the start. Lord, we praise you that you do not let us wander far. You bring us back. You bring us back. We praise you for all of this now. In Christ's name, amen.